welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm. I am your host, Alex Gore. We're here with a Monday morning coffee episode with a special guest, the president of NCARB. His name is John Allen Baker. He's a principal with DLR Group, an integrated international firm uh, delivering architecture, engineering, interiors planning, and building optimization. He specializes in the designs of planning of educational facilities throughout Southern California. John, welcome inside the firm. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. How's the weather out there? Uh, today and all last week has been beautiful. We might actually get a little bit of rain, but nobody really gives us gives us much sympathy when we do, because that's about as bad as it gets. No one cares. And everyone <laughs> exactly. is upset. Uh, Jonathan Seagal, one of the architects out there that's also a developer, people always uh -huh. complain, like, we can't do buildings like him because of, you know, we're in Minnesota and the climate doesn't <laughs> allow us to do awesome buildings like that. And obviously there's awesome architecture in Minnesota as well, but um, if you get the good weather, then you get the grief for having the good weather as well. <laughs> Goes with the territory. Yeah. Um, so let's back up and could you kind of give us the background of maybe your relevant experience of, of what got you from where you were to, you know, going into architecture and, and why you wanted to take this path into, into NCARB as well? Well, it's a, uh, at the risk of making a long story. Um, I got interested in architecture when I was uh, a freshman in high school, you know, taking a drafting class. And uh, and uh, at the end of our first year, the instructor gave us an assignment to design a house. And it's probably the most fun I ever had. Uh, still. Uh, I've, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've never looked back. I, there's never been anything else I've considered doing but becoming an architect from that point forward. That is so, awesome. So I, I got a great opportunity throughout my high school career to really just sort of um, uh, go into a deep dive into drawing art, uh, house plans and architectural details and all kinds of things like that. Spent uh, spent summers uh, framing houses and pouring concrete and got a real great understanding of how buildings go together through that process. And it was a lot of fun and uh, I still enjoy it. It's still probably the most interesting pastime I have. John, are you aware of the knowledge gained through osmosis of being out in the field and how valuable that is? Because you've, you know, I'll ask you where you went to architecture school, but you might have remembered um, a details class where they draw mm -hmm. the sections, you know, and your professor is drawing the sections. And I mean, it kind of hits, but it kind of doesn't. But if you're out in the field watching a building get built, it actually simplifies everything. Forces stack on top of forces. Water goes away from the building. Uh, what do you feel about that construction experience uh, for yourself? And do you recommend it for others? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I don't really have much college experience. And okay. so the idea of sitting in a classroom and being academically pumped full of knowledge and information wasn't ever really my strong suit. And so um, I, I spent a very short amount of time uh, taking a few classes at uh, Cal Poly in Pomona way back in the old days, but um, really for a variety of reasons, I never continued. So virtually all of my career has been learning on the job training. And so um, I, and I, and I fall into one of those categories. There are people who learn uh, extremely well in an academic setting. They learn by listening. They learn by those things. Uh, I learn best by doing. And I think there are a lot of people out there like me. Uh, especially in the architectural profession, because um, we have to know what we know, but we also have to know um, how to do things because we not only take ideas and design and create from those ideas, but we also have to create something that you can actually build. We have to prepare details and drawings to instruct contractors on how to build things. And so there's a, um, there's a professional side of it. And then there's actually um, 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 I guess more of a, a practical application uh, to our work that we have to do that uh, fits really nicely uh, when you learn on the job. So I, I learned by working in architectural offices over the years. I learned by working in the field during construction. Um, 
um, variety of things like that. Yep. And definitely art has architecture has art in it. Um, and, you know, some people like to say it is art, but art can be created for art's sake. A building isn't created just for itself's sake. It has forces. It has programs. Um, there's it, it's not just for its own enjoyment, uh, essentially. Well, that's, a, that's the best part about being an architect is we, we get to be artists, but we also we also get to transform the, the, the landscape for um, years and years after we're long gone. And uh, to be able to create um, um, uh, ideas and um, in such a way that you can build them and they can withstand uh, the years of, of, of use and uh, provide experiences for people that use those buildings is just a it's just a great it's a great thrill honestly. Yeah. Um, what was your process of when did you get to DLR Group? Um, uh, well, that's another long story, but uh, long story short is um, um, I had a, uh, um, a partnership uh, here in San Diego and uh, decided at a certain point in time uh, it was important to, to, to address a uh, ownership transition. And uh, for that, for, for us, that looked like an outside sale. So about two years ago, we actually sold our company, which used to be called the Baker Nowicki Design Studio, uh, to the DLR group. So um, I've, I've only had a short stint of time with DLR. <laughs> so this is very interesting because not a lot of people address it on podcasts and stuff like that. And obviously you don't have to go into the numbers, but generalities would be uh, very helpful to the audience. Meaning when you sold, how do you, how did you evaluate your company? Um, how did you look for people to buy? What were the terms in general about, Hey, you have to come and, you know, do you have to work for 10 years, five years? Can you just split, um, dive into that process because it, it's it, as architecture firm, especially small architecture firms, they should be building their, their practice so that it can sell so that it doesn't just dissolve, um, at the end and you get nothing besides your work and money during that time for it. It is a business as well. And you, it should be taken seriously. Ownership transition is complicated, and and for probably all businesses, it's extremely complicated for architects. And most architects um, don't really plan too far in advance for that sort of thing. We did. We 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 planned for that a decade in advance, so we knew what we were doing. Uh, we were about a thirty-person office, um, focused on public schools. We had our special specializations. Uh, we had a we had a, a very uh, well-run um, operation. So. Um, uh, that's sort of the starting point to be a marketable commodity if you decide to go out on the market. Uh, what we did from the standpoint of making a decision on uh, how to sell the firm, uh, we hired an outside consultant uh, to do a, a, a firm valuation for us. And uh, there's a lot of firms nationally that do that. Uh, we interviewed um, three firms, two national firms and one that was specialized mostly in California but also worked across the country from time to time uh, and ended up selecting that individual who really went through all of our, our profitability, our uh, client base, our strategic plans, our business plans, our financial performances, uh, and developed a um, evaluation model that would make sense um, when going out on the street to talk to firms that might be looking for an acquisition. And so that's where we started that process. Uh, we ended up um, uh, signing a separate contract with him after that uh, to go ahead and represent us. And so we um, had um, that firm represent us out on the marketplace and find us a buyer. And that, that's, that's the approach we took. There's, there's a lot of moving parts. There's the tangible financial aspects of uh, business and performance and profitability and all that sort of stuff. There's there's market penetration, there's specialization, there's goodwill, um, all those kinds of things play into the fact that some are, some are more, more tangible than others, um, but they all create a valuation of the company in the end. And, and 30 is a uh, pretty hefty number where one person leaving isn't probably the main driver of, of all the income coming in. But was there discussions about that, about keeping you on for however long? Was, did that come into uh, the negotiations? 
Yeah, I had one, uh, my, my primary uh, equal partner, uh, Rich Nowicki, um, uh, and I started the firm. We had two uh, junior partners that were um, a, a smaller percentage of ownership, but they were uh, kind of the first line on our bench. And so um, the four of us uh, agreed with uh, DLR to remain uh, with the practice for a certain duration. So we're in the midst of that at this point in time really to help with the transition um, and the integration of the two firms, uh, systems and employment practices and market penetrations and things like that. And, and also to make sure there's a, a smooth transition uh, between all of us and, and the new firm so that, that, uh, that we don't drop the ball in that process for them. For that integration, um, how was letting the, the whole staff know any lessons learned from there? And then integration, um, was the idea that you'd be a division in there? Are you staying in your same place or are teams cross-pollinating slash uh, working with each other? Uh, meaning are people being plucked out of, you know, let's just say Becky used to work with John all the time, a different John, J-O-H-N, but now now Becky has to work with someone from the new firm. Um, you know, I'm sure they had questions like that as well. Well, it's, it's an evolutionary process. Um, the first step in the integration process is you want to make sure that, um, um, nobody takes a step backwards. So there's a lot, there's a lot of research in, in evaluating, uh, salary structures and benefits programs and 401k contributions and, uh, bonus structures and, um, all those kinds of things to make sure that uh, when we do integrate, the new staff doesn't feel like um, they've lost something in the transaction. And so there's a lot of work to be done with that to make sure that it all works. Um, and national, an international firm like DLR has a different set of problems in establishing um, uh, consistent benefit uh, packages across 30 offices than we had to deal with with one office. <laughs> um, so there's some complications with that. Um, for the most part, the reasons I believe that we were attractive to them uh, were um, um, a couple of key things. One, one is we, we were an extremely profitable company um, and, and very successful from that standpoint. We, we run very, very high-level systems and processes in the office. Um, for a small firm, we're very, very advanced. Um, the second is that we we had a very strong and deep specialization in education. Um, we've been doing education for over 25 years. Uh, and although prior to that, uh, we've all done all kinds of different buildings, this is an area of specialization that we like and we've stuck with it and we've built some pretty strong relationships uh, throughout California in the education market. Uh, we've also demonstrated some um, extremely uh, progressive planning and design concepts in the education market that's gotten, uh, it's won us a lot of awards. It's gotten us a lot of uh, recognition throughout the state. And I think uh, that brings some some um, uh, characteristics to DLR that I thought they, I think they found attractive. Um, I think they also um, were interested in us because I think they really wanted to have a presence in San Diego, which is a very strong market uh, in the development, design and construction um, uh, areas. So. Um, although we specialize in schools, uh, DLR has uh, work in many, many other sec market sectors. And so they'd been in the process of making inroads without having a local presence in the San Diego market uh, for a number of years. And so uh, when we combine our work with DLR's work, now we have a significant amount of school work. We have some correctional facilities. We have some hotel um, projects. We have some mixed-use retail um, projects. Uh, so there's a, there's a variety of things that now uh, they've got a, 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 a local office to be able to uh, leverage that into the future. Did anyone from DLR, DLR move down uh, to San Diego uh, from those other specialties? Um, not yet. And part, part of the, uh, the transition are, our, our initial uh, period of integration is a three-year window. We're, we just finished our second year. And so for the first two years, for the most part, they uh, left us um, to continue operating the way we have been without imposing a lot of those other things on the office. 
Um, so as we ramp up to our third year, now we're beginning to have a little bit more uh, focus on um, how do we how do we um, start to integrate those other sectors, market sectors into the San Diego marketplace. And that'll take place over the coming year. Nice. Nice. Well, awesome. I'm glad we went on that tangent. <laughs> that was fun. Um, what what piqued your interest in being part of NCARB? And then what kept your interest about being part of NCARB? Because you've, you know, it's probably, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably not your first year doing stuff for the organization. Um, no, interestingly enough, um, I've been involved with NCARB for about uh, 17 years. Uh, and um, prior to that, um, I had gotten, uh, I had been appointed by uh, the governor to the California Licensing Board, California Arctic Board, CAB, C-A-B is what we call it out here. Um, I was appointed to that board in 2005. I, I've been licensed since the, like the mid-80s um, in the last century. And so um, hadn't really spent much time with regard to licensure, um, just focused on the practice of architecture. Um, and I was invited to apply and was ultimately um, uh, appointed by the governor. At this time, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was governor at the time, that appointed me to the board. And I began to understand um, what the licensure uh, process was all about with regard to architecture and how it worked and how complicated it was. And it wasn't so much about architecture as it was about regulation. Mm -hmm. um, at that point in time, I had also held an NCARB certificate, which is a, is a certificate to be able to gain reciprocity across the country. And I've been licensed in 10 states over the years um, for various reasons from time to time using that certificate. And I'd had a certificate since the mid 80s as well and never even thought about NCARB during that entire time. Well, when I got onto the California Licensing Board, um, NCARB played a big role in a lot of what we did. And I didn't understand how um, how complex all the issues were that NCARB participated in. So I started uh, flying around and attending their meetings yep. because I was interested. And over the, over those first few years, I I began volunteering for committees and getting involved. So uh, and then ultimately um, uh, just kind of worked my my way through the regional leadership um, onto the board. And so I've been on the board for. I guess about seven or eight years as I've started out as a regional director and secretary and treasurer and moved up in all those chairs until this year. Awesome. Um, and then how I think about NCARB is that there's a couple major pieces to it, and I'm sure there's more than what I'm aware of, but there's the accreditation of universities, there's the educational experience uh, tracking and, and putting together how many hours they are and making sure that all runs smoothly. And then there's the exams. Those are the three major pieces I see. Um, are there more than, than that? Um, or how do you well, look and, at it? And, and, and you're almost 100% correct. Oh, um, good. The passing. One you, the one thing you did mention that NCARB does not do, NCARB is not involved in the accreditation of schools of architecture. Uh, that is done by the NAAB, the National Architectural Accrediting Board, mm. uh, and they work with the, we refer, refer to it as the Academy, the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture, uh, and they set the, um, um, the uh, um, uh, accreditation criteria that schools use uh, to build their curriculum and, um, and thereby pro produce um, accredited graduates. Uh, NCARB, role is really a, a little different than you might expect. NCARB doesn't even license architects. Um, licensing of architects hand, is handled at a state jurisdictional level. So there's 55 jurisdictions, including the states and U.S. territories. Each of those jurisdictions um, is responsible for protecting their health, safety, and welfare of their public. And so they're responsible for licensing the practice of architecture within their borders. And so each state and then the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and Mariana Islands and all the rest of them. Uh, NCARB's role really is to help facilitate all those 55 jurisdictions in the licensure process and, um, and also um, uh, works with those states on um, the three um, 
the three competency areas of licensure, which you mentioned, which is, uh, we refer to it as the three-legged stool, which is a pretty old reference. Um, the education component, the examination component, and the experience component. Uh, on the education side, um, NCARB really just collaborates with the NAB and ACSA and the other organizations um, and has some, has some tools to be able to evaluate um, education of candidates that come from different areas, different countries, from one state to another um, uh, in their application for uh, reciprocity from state to state. And so uh, we play sort of a, um, a sideline role in the education process from the standpoint of evaluating uh, um, the, those criteria um, from uh, different candidates. On the experience side, um, NCARB created the AXP program, which is the Architectural Experience Program. It used to be called the Intern Development Program, but the word intern is apparently quite offensive to students, so we don't call them interns anymore. Um, I'm not sure what we call them, but we don't call them interns, apparently. Yeah, there's uh, so whole the AXP... forms about it. No, I don't. <laughs> no one can remember. And, so the, and the Experience Program really says that if you're going to be, um, if you're going to um, have a license to practice, and and you and you have to have a certain level of competency. That some of that competency has to come from hands-on experience working sure. under the supervision of a licensed architect. And so there's a certain number of hours that uh, students have to uh, or candidates have to complete, and they have to complete those hours in certain categorical areas. Whether it's the construction administration phase of a project, whether it's in the practice management of a firm, uh, those kinds of things. So there are different areas and categories to log hours. Um, and then on the uh, um, uh, examination portion, NCARB plays the biggest role. NCARB creates the architectural registration exam. Uh, we have hundreds of committee members who write exam questions and evaluate exam questions and analyze all that stuff and build the exam forms that go out. And then um, states under contract to NCARB are allowed to administer that NCARB exam to their candidates for licensure. So the role that NCARB plays really falls into those those categories. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I feel like of the three leg of uh, legged stool. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, the exam and stuff like that. That for some reason I thought that they accredited it, and it seems like there's a little bit of that stool leg might be a little bit shorter than needed for a necessary like 360 degree not only visual thing but um, responsibility. You know, um, but we'll get into that afterwards. Let me let me see if I can share my screen here. This came from uh, NCARB itself, which is great. A lot, a lot of good data about um, the tests and all that. Uh, so right here, we're looking at pass rates, um, and it has the different tests in there, um, from construction evaluation all the way to project planning. Project planning is the lowest at 47 and uh, the highest two are project management at 63 and uh, 65 for construction evaluation. And <clears throat> right now, one of the greatest things that I was aware of, we interviewed the last president last year um, uh -huh. and NCARB worked on developing more of their practice tests. And there was an improvement in the pass rate based on people taking those uh, practice tests. So right now the average is 55% across all divisions uh, no change in going up or down uh, between all of them. Um, I think it did increase some on the uh, construction evaluation. Um, pass rates on first attempts were higher. Um, and then here we go. 69% uh, of candidates used practice exam before taking the related divisions. 12% average pass rate increase after using exam, uh, practice examination. So I think that that's a great move um, in the right direction. Uh, and I think I just have one slide here. The last slide, this is candidate C highest pass rate immediately after completing the AXP, which is your experience hours. So mm -hmm. for people listening, it, it has all the different tests, and then it basically goes through time on, on the other access, and it it starts on the left-hand side with the least amount of experience of less than 33%. And those are the lowest pass rates. Um, and then it goes to about, you know, you're a third through your hours and, and you're probably at the 75 to 99% of your hours. And then 
there's a line and then it's three months after you complete your hours, four months to 12 months and a year plus. And the, and the best range is zero to three months. The pass rates are 76%, 61, 70, 72, 72, 67. And it makes complete sense, especially when uh, you look at the left-hand side of people that have less than a third of their hours. I mean, 60%, 43, 47, 47, 58, 40%. It's, um, you just don't know, you know, like you're just getting into architecture, you're drinking from a fire hose. There's a lot going on. Uh, not only is there a lot going on in your firm, but there's a lot going on in, in studying uh, people's lives to transitioning out of college and stuff like that. But this is, I think this chart is probably one of the best charts to look at to examine, you know, what, what's happening. Um, because if you just look at the overall pass rate where the average is 55%, um, it's concerning. It's concerning to me as an architect. It's concerning to me as part of the community. It's concerning to me as uh, someone, I'm on the board of our local charter school. If, if I saw those numbers and consistent those numbers, um, not only would I work to improve it, but I would hold people accountable that, that couldn't approve it. Um, people, people would be fired. Um, this is unacceptable for people who go through, uh, you know, like in my case for, uh, you know, people on the school board, uh, who have all the resources and, and, uh, have all the students and all that. So what, what I want to talk about and, and, and kind of examine are, uh, some strategies to, to, or some thoughts about improving this. And, and one of them would be, you know, the easiest is, um, not allowing people to waste their time and money and their sanity on taking these tests when they have less than a third of the hours in there, they have less than a 50% chance on, on average of, of, of passing them. And what also is in the data is that people are taking the tests less than before. They're not taking them as much and they're probably, um, they're probably, you know, disheartened by some of it. Um, I'm, I, I've talked to people in other professions in engineering and, and in medical um, as well, because they have to take tests as well. Um, and their pass rates are, are higher. And <clears throat> one of the reasons I bring up that three-legged stool is because NCARB doesn't seem to have all the authority that I thought it did. Meaning if these test rates are at 55%, you could look at a couple different areas. One, you could look at experience. It seems like experience is what's moving the needle. It seems like that experience category is what's really, really helping. The second, you could look at the tests themselves, and that would where you'd individually look at which tests have a low pass rate um, and understand why. Maybe it's the way things are worded. Maybe it's some other things. But then the third is that if, if those two aren't uh, self-evident, you would look at who's being led into these colleges and how these colleges are run. Because if basically... I'm okay with putting burden on on students and individuals to basically study and work hard and get the experience they need and and to not lower the standard. I don't want to lower the standard whatsoever. But if NCARB, which they don't, dictated what schools were essentially uh, accredited, which means you control the standards for that, you control the standards for the experience, and you control the standards for the test. It, it it seems frustrating that the average is still at 55. That was a lot. <laughs> well, I all, Those numbers tell us a lot of different things. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to start at the beginning and, and just offer some observations. Um, you know, and, and remember, I'm not a psychometrician and I'm not even a college graduate. So you got to take what I say with a grain of salt. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and this is all in the best of, uh, of, uh, win-win solutions. <laughs> the, um, the practice exams start with that. Um, part of the, there are two reasons why they were created. One is to provide, um, reliable study materials for students. So, um, uh, and then the second is to provide affordable study materials for students, because we'd heard, uh, a lot of stories about um, students spending thousands and thousands of dollars on study materials, um, which may or may not have been helping them 
as much as you'd like. So uh, we created the practice exams and we uh, we make them available for free. So if you have, uh, if you start a file with NCARB, you're a candidate on the licensure path, even if you haven't done anything yet, but you got a file, you can take the practice exams for free. Uh, and it does a couple things for you. It, it gives you uh, an opportunity to see what you're up against when you do take the real exam, but it also gives you a score report and a lot of information that helps you determine whether or not you're actually ready to take the exam. Uh, shows you where you're strong, shows you where you're weak. Um, part of the reason why that's uh, they're able to do that is because of the, the way we created those practice exams and the way we made them reliable. Uh, they are created and, and the items uh, and exam questions are written by the same committees that write the ARE. It's, it's, these, these were special exams were written by the same people and produced and made available um, as practice exams. So which is the brilliant. Way, the, the way the questions are written, the way the distractors are created so that you think that's the right answer, but it's not the right answer. All of that is done by the same people who write the exam. So the same volunteer pool. So that provides a, a tool for, for candidates that, that and I think what you're right is you're seeing less exams sometimes or it's a, a, a slower pace because candidates have figured out that, hey, maybe I should try and see where I am. And if I'm ready, then I'll go ahead. And if I'm not, I'm going to study the areas where I'm weakest first. So the practice exams have played a really great role in that process. Um, the, uh, the chart that you had that showed um, um, what suggests that experience makes a big difference in moving the needle and preparing people for passing the exam. Um, well, I would I would tell you that I'd take it a step further and say that experience actually prepares you better for actual practice mm -hmm. 100%. Uh, of architecture. And part of the reason is that schools uh, and the NAB and the ACSA specifically state that they're not in the business of preparing you for preparing students for practicing architecture. They, they, they believe that's a vocational aspect of the profession and that the profession should teach you how to practice and that their job is to create um, uh, creative design thinkers and teach you how to create a design. And so there's, there's a, there's a, so for, for all of us in the room here who are licensed architects, we look at that and scratch our heads and say, well, that design's a big part of what we do, but all the other stuff that aren't taught in schools as much as we think they should are also very important. And some would say maybe even a little more important from the standpoint of protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the public, knowing how to put a building together, knowing how engineering gets integrated into a building, knowing how to manage the construction process and all of the, all those things that go into the practice of architecture. And so there's, there is a role that schools play in that process. Um, and there are always going to be, students who are going to take the academic route and an accredited education is never going to be something that we're going to um, try to disband or say it's not of any value. But um, we do believe that the experience uh, uh, component of, of gaining competency uh, hasn't got as much airtime as it should have over the years. And, and that's so why I, I'm so glad when we have these conversations, because two of the critical things that I wish everyone that's studying for these could take away from this. One is those practice exams from NCARB are worth it. And, and and I hope that if you get, let's just say, I don't know, does it tell you when you take a practice if you pass the practice exam? Oh, totally. It gives okay. you an entire score report, tells you how you did on each question and what the right answer is and why the right answer is the right answer, yep. and why your answer was not. There's a lot so, of data. So the correlation should be studied of, you know, um, Pa passing those and passing the exam. And and that is way different than before. And like you said, the burden of spending thousands of dollars on materials is terrible because um, they're probably doing that because the pass rate is, is so low. So the first major thing is that people should take the NCARB practice exam. And the second thing that they should do is if I was advising them is not burden yourself with taking them too early. The once you have your experience hours, zero to three months, you're at the 70 something percent pass rate, which is very uh, in line with, you know, other professions or just some people take te tests differently. The tests are meant to be difficult. 
Um, those two things I think would go to, uh, would be a huge relief to people, <laughs> you know, uh, if they follow those two kind of simple rules. I, I, I totally agree. Uh, there's, there's a part of this profession and there's a lot of material in our exams that are experience-based and, and practice-based and, and, um, schools don't, um, they don't teach to the test. They don't want to teach to the test. And that's the reason why the experience program exists. That's why we created internships. That's why we created the IPAL program, which you may have heard about, the integrated practice uh, path licensure was created to um, allow accredited schools to integrate the examination and the experience program into their curriculum so that students are, are, are taking part-time internships while they're in school and applying the knowledge that they're learning in school and starting to understand how this stuff actually um, manifests out in the real world. Yep. And I'm seeing schools really step up their practicality as well. I teach at CU Boulder, thus the shirt. Uh, me and Coach Prime are best friends, even if he doesn't know it. Uh, and <laughs> in the morning uh, before class, two students were talking to each other. It's an architectural engineering uh, department, and they have to make uh, this popsicle bridge thing. And there's a design team, and then there's a construction team. And the construction team can ask for RFIs and all that. But if it fails, whatever stress test they have to put on it, that team then has to go to mitigation against the professor. <laughs> and and there yeah. and I asked if real world consequences, like, yeah, whoever if if it fails and if the mitigation shows that they did something wrong, their grade gets stocked. Um which is, it's better to learn that process and everything in the safer environment of school, and that doesn't directly apply. Um, but is there anything else, uh, before we move on, because there's there's this new exciting thing about NCARB developing uh, multiple paths, but the, the, the tests themselves, and, and some of the gripes that I hear the most about, is the emphasis on, on project management and, and contracts. When so many people who are taking this Yes, you are licensed after you're done. The moment you get licensed, I'd like to see if there's a number of about the percentage of people that actually just go ahead and start their own firm. My guess is that it would be low. And my guess is that the their experience, why those that test and why those are so hard for people is because me as a firm owner, I'm not going into um, the technical documents of contracts with people that are zero to three years, it's just overload on themselves. It doesn't apply. And also we own our own contracts, so we don't even use AIA contracts. Um, so it, it seems to be a, a continual sticking point in, in gripe. And I think it's just a mismatch because we're seeing experience matters, but we can't firm technicalities of, of contracts doesn't come until you're really in it day in and day out. You can be in construction documents in your third year. You can be in DDs in your second year. You can be in SDs in your third year. But that seems like another disconnect that, again, I, I, I want to harp on it because I think it's serious because I, I don't think a lot of people think NCARB is listening when they say, we went to school. We got good grades. We studied hard. We got out of school. I study hard. I, go, I work at a job. I get good uh, reviews. And I cannot pass these tests. That's difficult, difficult to hear. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I agree with you that there are some disconnects. I'm not sure I would say that I see the same disconnects that you see. Oh, what? And yeah, here, what do and, you see? And, and here, here's where I would start. Um, the pre, the the exams and the AXP. Uh, were um, uh, revised uh, a number of years ago into these six categories, two of which um, are not necessarily building related. One is project management, yep. and, and which uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of tasks and, and responsibilities that go into that category. But a lot of recent graduates aren't really in a position where they're going to manage a project. But those they're still important skill sets. And the other is practice management. Practice management touches on all the all the ugly things that you just mentioned, contracts and HR and financial management and all the stuff that uh, you know you, you you'd think for the most part most people aren't going to be exposed to. But here's the rub: when you get licensed, 
regardless of when you do it, when the day you get licensed, you are authorized by your jurisdiction to practice architecture. And you have to do it in, a, in, a, in an ethical, professional way that protects the health, safety, and welfare of the public. And so because, because you're licensed to practice, whether you decide to do it or not, you have to have the competencies to understand the aspects of all of those components. Because if for some reason, a, if somebody comes up to you and says, you're an architect, I'd like to have you design a building for me, um, where do we start? And if you've decided I'm not interested in learning about contracts until later in my career, well, that's going to be inconvenient because one of the places you're going to start is with a contract. Um, so there are competencies that you have to have, even if you're not necessarily going to use them right away. Um, in practice, in an office, one of the things that, um, uh, uh, that I see, um, people in the early stage of their career, they don't, they don't negotiate contracts. They're not developing fee proposals. Uh, they're not building project budgets and things like that but they certainly should understand that aspect of the project they're working on. They should be able to look at the, 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 the fee and the project budget that they are tasked with participating in and understand how much time they have to deliver the work. And is there a match between that and the scope of work that I think I'm gonna to have to draw and can I, can I get this done within those, those numbers of hours? Uh, there's some legal obligations that everybody should take time to read it very seldom does anybody do it understanding what does the contract say my deliverables are at these different phases and what are the things i'm obligated to do that if i don't do um i could be fired or be it could be a breach of contract or or worse and so um what i i tell people all the time um in our in our in my office and it's always been this way all of our contracts and fees and budgets are all available to all of our staff anytime they want to see it. Same. I tell them, here's, here's, here's the project you're working on. Go look through the contract. If there are things in there that you find that you aren't sure about, oh, come see me. We'll sit and I'll talk to you about it. We'll ex I'll explain why they're in there. Um, you see very few people actually take the time to do that. And, uh, and, and it, it goes to where I see one of the disconnects, and it's this. Um, Students have a path to licensure. They go to school. They do what their instructors say. I did all the assignments. I got really good grades. I did all this stuff. Why can't I pass the exam? You got to own your career path. You got to own the responsibilities for your success, which means um, you have to really evaluate what you're being told in school and the things you're being taught and, and think about, okay, are there parts of this practice in this profession that I'm not being told about that I need to do some special studying on on my own because I'm interested in learning it? And the answer is yes. And so to some extent, um, a lot of people don't take that accountability for their own obligation to own their, uh, their career path on their own. So you, uh, because I didn't go to school, um, I had to. I had to decide how am I going to how am I going to develop the competencies to practice architecture. So, I I did a number of things to um, uh, working in different size firms, working on different size projects, asking lots of questions. Um, uh, if if I didn't if I didn't understand things about contracts, I would study contracts. I'd pull contracts out and I'd read them and I'd go bug people and ask them questions about it until they were tired of me asking questions because I wanted to learn all of that stuff. And so you have to want to learn all of that uh, to really become competent. But at the end of the day, the exams and the experience that we require of candidates for initial licensure has to cover all the bases that are respons they're responsible for, because the very next day, they could go out and take responsibility for a client's projects, and they better be competent to do it right, or they're not going to be a licensed architect for very long. Yep. And, and, and I agree with that. And, and I think um, some of the problems maybe in the past was people would state, Hey, I am learning on my own. I am buying different books. I am buying a thousand dollars worth of study materials, but now, you know, this conversation, not all people are going to go and look through the NCARB website and look at all their graphs, like we brought up and all that and, and say that, Hey, your experience does matter. And, and, you know, maybe you shouldn't be taking your test until you're at least 75% complete. I, I would like NCARB to think about not letting people 
tests until they're over 33% because there's, I mean, those pass rates are terrible <laughs> and they're setting, <laughs> you know, that, um, anyways, uh, and then, and then also developing your own test, um, and can continue to improve on that. And that study guide are very helpful. So I think, I think we covered that to, to a good, uh, amount okay. before we leave, I do want to cover, um, these multiple paths. It's very fitting since yourself is, are, are not a university graduate that NCARB is looking into more of these paths to become an architect. So can you talk about those? Sure. Um, the majority of jurisdictions um, for initial licensure require an accredited degree from a school of architecture. Um, and that was always um, culturally, that's what our profession supported um, for a, a lot of years. 17 jurisdictions allow licensure through a multiple uh, of different pathways by exchanging experience for education. So for instance, in my case, uh, uh, California is one of those 17 states. So in California, uh, I have an eight-year window and I have to have eight years of, of combined education and experience to be able to sit for the exam um, to become licensed. Uh, that can that can look like five years of education and three years of edu of experience, or it can look like two years of education and six years of experience, or it could look like eight years of experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and that flexibility uh, was helpful to me because um, you know I, I I didn't I didn't I didn't grow up in an affluent family uh, that had resources. There was uh, the few years that I tried to go to college, worked forty hours a week. I was, it was very, very difficult. There was not much um, time for, um, um, you know, activities such as sleeping and yep. things of that nature. And and it's tough, you know, you work graveyard art, uh, um, uh, at a 7-Eleven and then you get up and you go to school um, after you leave uh, your, your workplace and you go to school all day. And at some point you have to figure out where I'm gonna get a couple hours of sleep to be able to, you know, uh, um, perform. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are in that situation. They can't, they don't have the resources um, to be able to go to an accredited school and pay the tuitions. And so it's not to say that the majority of people might still do that, but there ought to be pathways are, that are supported universally across the country to support people who either don't have resources or they learn in a different way than, um, than in an academic setting. And, and they so might, the, the, they, sorry, I want to, Sorry to interrupt, but I want to interrupt and say they might not want to burden themselves down with that much debt. Well, there's that too. And there's actually a little bit of a national wave right now going across the country about the cost of higher education. Yeah. And it's not just the architectural profession. Sure. Yeah, of and course. Whether, whether or not your, your, your starting salary is satisfactory to be able to start paying down that debt. And in many cases, it's not. Yeah. And so that, that is a big burden. But at the end of the day, 30% um, of our jurisdictions allow multiple pathways. Our goal is that all jurisdictions would allow those multiple pathways um, at an equal level with some ability to trade uh, experience for education or otherwise. Uh, we've got about 165 or so uh, community college architectural programs across the country. Those are two-year programs. The students in those two-year programs um, some get a certificate, some get an AA degree, some don't get anything. They're not accredited uh, as an architectural school for licensure. Uh, they're not highly recognized uh, or, or otherwise within the profession. And they're not even an organized group in many ways, like the accredited schools of architecture are. But the work that those students do in those two years is a really great balance between uh, design and planning and analysis and design thinking, as well as code research and constructability and systems integration and all those other aspects. So they come out of those two-year programs with a fairly solid competency level of understanding the planning and the design process and how buildings go together. Uh, and, and from those programs, they can transfer to an accredited school if the accredited school will give them two years worth of credit. And many of them won't, mm -hmm. which is not reasonable. Uh, and then there's a lot of those students who are going to community college because they can't afford to do anything else. And so, mm -hmm. what do they do next? Are they? Uh, do they have a? They, do they have the right combination of 
uh, competencies to be able to leave the two-year program and get an entry-level position with a firm. And so I actually have a work group right now uh, that's developing a uh, workforce readiness competency standard that says, uh, what are the competency standards necessary for entry-level employment with an architectural firm? So that that can be built into to support those, um, those two-year programs at community colleges for those students. Absolutely. Um, agree wholeheartedly with the practicality of that thought um, and the mission that's going on there. Um, I that wraps it up for me. I'll lead you leave you with uh, any other thought that you want to talk about that we didn't cover, and anywhere any kind of plugs of where people can go to get more information or anything like that. Um, well, the uh, anybody who's in the licensure pathway uh, or even practicing and is interested in an NCARB certificate, the NCARB website is pretty easy to navigate and has a lot of good information. The customer service staff at NCARB is also very, very helpful. And if you've got a unique situation, you went to school in uh, in Italy and you're trying to figure out how to get a license in the U.S., the, the, uh, um, the, um, uh, the customer service staff at NCARB understand a lot of the intricacies of those programs. And you can, you can present your own unique situation. They can help you through that process. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things with that. Um, I would say that um, um, two things. Um, one is, like you say, you know, the the the, the way you practice, uh, take practice exams and things before you go to get licensed. But I would encourage anybody who's thinking about the licensure path to do it and do it sooner than later. Don't wait until you're 20 years in the profession and you have three kids and a mortgage, uh, and it's much more difficult. Get licensed. It gives you options in your future. To decide how you want to, um, you know, you know, um, uh, lead your career at that point in time, and the only other thing I'd say is, I to this day I've been practicing for forty five years, and I love this business. Uh, it's given me the privilege of doing some great things, and I can I can drive by projects that I designed and built thirty five years ago, and it still gives me a, a great deal of pride and satisfaction that I've I've been able to have the privilege of doing things for society that is really meaningful for communities. So awesome. it's all good stuff. Well, thanks for coming on Inside the Firm, John. Happy to participate. Thanks for having me, Alex. Um, it's a pleasure.